Good morning, Katusa First. It's good to see you all here this morning. Um, if you are new to this church, let me just remind you or tell you for the first time who we are. We are a community of servants who try to serve our community. That God has given us grace, love, and resources to give back. And so hopefully the love of God flows out onto all of you here. We also like to work our way through a book of the Bible at a time. And we do that so we can't skip the hard stuff. We're currently in the book of Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you got your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 1. You're too fast. I didn't even tell you what verse yet. And uh, we are going to begin reading in verse, we'll do verse 24. But before we do that, let me kind of preface a little bit about what the sermon's going to be about. Uh, Paul is discipling not just his whole church, but he has a very specific person that he's trying to help. Uh, there is a pastor, you'll see it mentioned in verse 7. His name is Epaphras. And Paul has been discipling this individual. He probably doesn't know most of the people in the church, never met him face to face. But he's heard about what is going on. And in order to help disciple this young pastor who has a church that has some problems, he is simply writing a letter to that church, trying to help them like navigate some of these issues. And that might not seem like a big deal. Hey, I have a friend who's having a problem. Can you write some words of encouragement and advice to his church? That's all he's doing, and that is discipleship. There you go. Okay, good. I was checking. Some of the adults raised their hand too, right? Remember, kids, whenever you hear that word, that's the word of the day. Um, so it doesn't seem like he's doing all that much. But he has a pastor's heart, and he begins with trying to invest in them. We've said that people are like bank accounts. If you take too many withdrawals and say too many negative things to somebody, they end up feeling negative, right? If you take too much money out of your bank account, you're negative. And people can be the same way. So he makes a lot of deposits into their lives. He says true things about who they are. He's heard good things about them because you can be legalistic and still a good, loving person, right? Like you can be a good follower of Christ with issues. So just because he focuses on the issues does not mean he doesn't care for them or thinks they're totally bad. And we tend to operate in extremes. Either somebody is really good or somebody's really bad, and we forget that this middle ground, you can be, if you are a believer, you're, you can be a good Christian who's making mistakes. And what you need is someone to come along and correct you and help navigate you and point you back to Jesus. You ever been to the chiropractor? Right? He usually doesn't fix everything in one visit. You go back week after week, and he makes small adjustments to your body to try to get you in line. That's what coming to church is, right? This is one of the reasons we come here. We're trying to make small adjustments into your life to help you get your eyes back on what is important. That's why we read our Bible every morning. It is an adjustment to our hearts and our minds and our attitudes. We open up God's Word, and I need an adjustment. I need God to realign my focus because I get off track. So uh, discipleship is this kind of old, over-the-shoulder ministry, Right? You have people at work, you invite them into your life. You have family members, you invite them into your life. And a lot of you, in fact, I would say one of the number one difficulties Christians have is discipling other people. Good job. 
And why is that? Why is it that discipleship is so hard? There was at a, uh, I was talking with another pastor, and I said, hey, have you ever been to this pastor meeting? I was thinking about going, and he said, I, I went once, and they asked me to speak, and I was a brand new pastor, and instead of me talking, since all of these senior adult pastors who were in their 70s and even 80s were there, I wanted to ask their advice, and so he began by just saying, would you guys teach me what discipleship is? How do I disciple other people? And after he said that, the pastors looked around and they said, well, when you figure it out, let us know. And he was shocked that he had been around, like he was a new, a new pastor, and here he is around all of these guys who had been doing it for so long, but yet they didn't even know how to explain, how to effectively disciple other believers. And so one, that should be really a focus of this church. Discipleship should be one of our main focuses of how do we pass this on to the people around us. Y'all arms are going to be tired by the time this sermon's over because we're saying it a lot today. So one of the things that Paul is going to do is he's going to set right expectations for what discipleship will look like, and then he's going to give us a hint on how to do it. Okay, are you ready? Colossians 1 verse 24. If you got it, let's say I got it. I love it. Always one of you. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So the first thing he says is, now I rejoice in my suffering. So do you realize that suffering is a part of discipleship? We have continuously said that people are messy, and if you are going to get involved in somebody's life, not in a shallow way, but to actually help point them closer to Christ, guess what? Their messiness is going to land at your doorstep, and you're going to have to deal with it. So there is an effort of difficulty and suffering that comes along with discipleship. Do you think when Jesus is pouring into the disciples that he had, <laughs> you missed one, right? Do you think when he was pouring into his followers that that was easy for them because they were a mess? Now, he's perfect, but they were frustrating. Because every now and then they would just be like, hey, Jesus, which one of these people, like, can we just call down uh, lightning and kill all these people? And you can just imagine Jesus like, oh, my gosh. Like, have you not listened to a single word I've said? Your first instinct is like, uh, let's kill the people that we don't like, right? And here I am trying to show you grace and love. So, but he says, I rejoice in my suffering. Paul suffers, like all of you, and you will suffer at some point. He is not, uh, Paul's not perfect. He's flawed. He's vulnerable. He's open. And any time you are involved with somebody and you are open and vulnerable, there tends to be tension and some level of suffering that takes place in that. The other day, uh, Titus was at soccer practice. 
and he was out on the field, and one of the better kickers kick just wound up and just launched the ball as a rocket, and Titus was close by, and the ball just smacked him right in the face, right? Like, just, just hit him hard. And it hurt, and you could tell it hurt, and he leaves the field for a little bit, trying to gather himself, and mom goes out there, talks to him for a little bit, but he wasn't quite ready to get back on the field, so I go and we have the dad-son talk, right? And it's one of those great moments that you get to invest in your kids, because I asked him, I said, did it hurt? He says, yes. I said, does it still hurt? Yes. And I know you want to give up, but guess what? If you go and you sit on the bench, your face is still going to hurt. So no matter what you do, the pain is going to be there. So you might as well figure out how to suffer well instead of just suffering and giving up. And I'm very proud of him because he suffered well and he got back in the game. See, every one of you is going to suffer, but the question is, do you suffer well? You are going to struggle, and there is going to be difficulties as you open up your life. Man, you want to know a dangerous prayer to pray? It's like, God, would you help me to grow? That just makes you a glutton for punishment as God tries to correct you and mold you in who you need to be, and it's going to feel like suffering. And you can do what the rest of the world does. Whenever an obstacle comes into their path, they're either going to give up or say, I can do this on my own. But what Paul wants to role model, and one of the things that I'm learning as we read this book, is that he suffered. Now, the way he suffered is not the way that you suffered, okay? He's, he's in jail writing this. His suffering's a little bit higher than yours. He, he gets shipwrecked. He gets beaten. He gets bit by snakes. Everything goes wrong. But suffering is a part of his path to Christian maturity. And he talks at the end here about, I want you to be mature. And we'll talk about what that looks like. So, Paul... He's like, no matter what, I want you to finish strong. And he gives us an example. And there's, there's a weird phrase uh, in this passage here. This is verse 24. He says, uh, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. So is he suffering selfishly? Why is he suffering? For other people. His suffering, what does suffering usually do? Turns you inward, doesn't it? Suffering has a way of making us selfish. Why is everything going wrong with me? Why is everything bad happen to me? And suffering tends to like draw us inside and we get like protective. So there's like a level of selfishness that can happen there. But he says, I'm suffering for you. Where does he learn this from? Where does Paul learn how to suffer for other people? Church answer, somebody. There we go, right? He learned it from the one who discipled him. He learned it from his teacher. Uh, Scripture says, For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. So Jesus suffered for a greater joy in the future. And this is called parenting for many of you, right? It feels like you're suffering now, but you hope they're going to turn out okay, right? So there can be moments of suffering, but it's for the joy that will be in the future. This is why Paul suffers well, because he is not suffering selfishly. If you are suffering and struggling, and you're going through a difficult time, don't let it turn you inward alone. Nothing wrong with being introspective and looking on the inside, but don't just let it alone be where it turns you. It needs to put your eyes back on Christ. And he says this, um, 
I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. What a weird turn of phrase. Sometimes Paul says things that are weird. And it almost sounds like Christ didn't suffer enough, so I'm filling up what was lacking, so I'm taking over the suffering after Jesus. And that's not at all what he's saying. We know that because the rest of the Bible, right? So what is it that he's saying? He, he's essentially like, hey, the same way that Christ suffered, if I'm going to be a Christ follower, I should expect that we are all going to suffer. I'm doing my part. Like the body of believers is going to have difficulty and I'm just doing my part by suffering. Many of us try to escape suffering at all costs. Self-preservation is like the highest human instinct that we have. That's why you get close to a flame. You pull your hand back because you don't want to get burned, right? Like we try to avoid difficulty at all costs for the most part. But you will endure great suffering if you truly believe it will yield a good result. So you do this with your job. You'll put up with difficulty because you believe the mission is greater than whatever difficulty that you're going through. Or you'll do this with your finances. You, you will not buy things that you really want because you're saving for something that you think is better, right? So you will, or even if you go to the gym, right, you will, you, you will work out and you will suffer in the gym because you believe there's a greater reward in health for being in shape. So you will do all sorts of suffering because you have a greater hope in the future. And if you find yourself stuck in suffering with no hope beyond it, man, that's where real depression enters in. Relate this to discipleship. A lot of times, we just don't want to get involved in other people's messiness. We just don't. Because we, we can see that they're going to be difficult. Guess what? You're difficult. <laughs> right? In some area of your life, and I bet if I asked your spouse or family, they would tell me which one. Right? Like, like they're a great person, but when it comes to this, they're, uh, they're unbearable. And if someone is going to come along and try to help you to know Jesus better, that person is going to suffer trying to teach you, and you are going to suffer as they try to change you. That's why what he says next is so important. Verse, uh, well, let's go to verse 28 first. So if you disciple somebody, A, the expectation is it's going to be difficult. And point two, he says, him we proclaim. So how do you disciple somebody? You just tell them about Jesus. So his focus is always throughout this book is going to be Jesus, 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 Jesus. Because he just wants you to have your eyes on that so the rest of the distractions, the rest of the world falls aside. So it says, him we proclaim, and then look what he says next. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. So you're going to proclaim Jesus, and one of the ways you do that is you teach them about Jesus, and that's great. And the other thing is, is you warn people about the other idols in their life. As you begin to get involved in a non-believer or a new Christian, what you're going to find, if they're a new Christian, they have Jesus in their life, but guess what? They might have four or five other Jesuses too that are like on the side. They're, they're, they're brand new. They're like, okay, Jesus is great, I love him, but I also love this, and I love this, and I love this, and it's all equal. 
And so part of the process of discipleship, the scripture uses the term pruning, right? Like it's cutting off branches. There were things about myself that I loved that God had to remove in order to grow me. Isn't that weird? There were things about my personality that I loved that God had to remove in order to grow me. And you're like, well, what could you love that God needed to get rid of? Well, one of them is, is uh, I consider myself as somebody to have a quick wit. And I always thought I was good at jokes at other people's expense, right? Put downs. And if you do that enough times, you get quick-witted. And you could kind of figure out what somebody's weakness is and then use that against them. And, and I thought I was really good at that. And a part of me, I know it sounds shallow, but this is about being open and vulnerable, right? We're honest here. Um, I, I didn't really like giving that up. But as I began to mature, God showed me that in order to attach an insult to anybody, I had to first remove the image of God from them. I had to stop thinking of them as a, a child or brother or sister of God, and I had to think about them as just something. And so if I remove the image of God, then I could say whatever I want, and I could make it funny and make myself laugh. And as God began to grow me, all of a sudden the things I loved, I started to go, you know what, God, you're right. You're right. Everyone is created in the image of God, and they shouldn't be used for a cheap punchline. I shouldn't use other people's weaknesses as a source of comedy for myself. Now, all of you have something like that. You have an area where God wants to grow you, and most of you know where God wants to grow you, but you don't want to give it up. And the realization needs to be is because you love it so much. Because you love it. That's why it's hard to give up. If you ever struggled with some sin and you were like, man, I wish I could overcome this and I've been, I've been trying. Well, sometimes we think it's just a sin issue or an addiction issue. It's a love issue. And so this is why Paul says you need to teach and warn. Teach them how good God is and how faithful and trusting Jesus is and how evil and deceitful these other gods that you construct in your life are. Then he says, uh, him we proclaim, warning everyone, this is verse 28, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. What does a mature Christian look like? You know, I don't think I could have answered that question when I was a young believer. But what is it, because now we don't even really know what a mature adult looks like, right? We have... Um, I don't know if you realize this, but there used to be a clear distinction between child and adult. Right? There was a rite of passage. Uh, in the Jewish culture, you might have a bar mitzvah right around the age of 13, where they stop being a child and they become an adult. And now, in our culture, we've made adolescence or teenage years go anywhere from like 13 to 28. And you got 32-year-olds who have a, a college degree, but they live at home with their mom because they don't know what an adult is. They don't know. There's a few places that will tell you when you become an adult. IHOP. There's a children's menu and adult menu, right? Very clear, distinct rite of passage. But in Christianity, do we constantly focus on, do you know when you're mature? How do you know if you are maturing? What does that look like? Well, Paul tells us that too. 
turn over just one book. In fact, it might even be on the same page in your Bible as Philippians chapter 4. If you just look on the other page. Philippians chapter 4. Let's look at verse 11. He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, and in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So if I wanted to ask Paul, what does a mature Christian look like? Yes, we have the fruits of the Spirit, right? Peace, patience, kind, love. And those are things that happen. You can have those as you're growing. You will increase in measure in those things. But if I was just to sum up Christian maturity in this, it would be to say that all I need is Christ. I am totally sufficient in Him. Whether I am rich or poor, whether I am in jail or free, no matter what it is, I am okay because I have Christ. That, to me, is somebody who is a mature Christian. You can suffer well if, because nobody can take Christ from you. Nobody can take that from you. So you could take away everything somebody has, but they don't yell and curse the ground, and they don't, they, they don't throw a fit because they haven't lost the thing that was the most precious to them. They still have Christ. And myself included and many of us, there are things that if we lost in our life right now, we might just turn our back for a long time. God, I can't believe you did this to me. God, I can't believe, why would you ever do this to me? You betrayed me or something along those lines. But a mature believer is somebody who says, no matter what happens, I'm okay. There are certain people that I've had the pleasure of knowing, that have been role models in my life. Like when you're a kid, you, you have celebrities that you look up to, right? He, my brother played basketball. He wanted to be Larry Bird. And, and whatever Larry Bird did, my brother would try to do. Because you need to, you all have somebody in your mind that you're like, I wish I could be like this. Now, it kind of, you don't have it so much as you get older, but you should, but instead of a celebrity or a sports player, you should find a godly man or woman who is mature in Christ and begin to say, I want to be able to walk as freely as that person does. Because do you realize how freeing it is that if all you have is Christ, then your world cannot be rocked the way everybody else's is? Needing only Christ is what freedom actually looks like. In fact, uh, I've been really studying for, I don't know, almost probably like the last year, trying to figure out when Jesus says, my peace I leave, my peace I give, and I don't give as the world gives, right? Jesus has, like, he offers an inner peace. Other religions use this phrase, right? Like, uh, inner peace or zen. And I'm trying to find that Christian zen. What does it look like to be just a rock of a human being, of somebody who, no matter what happens, their outside circumstances don't determine how, determine how they feel. 
but they are solid, that no matter what comes from their lips is praise and glory and honor to Jesus. That's a difficult road to get to. And you know what? The only people I found that actually have that, they're not young people. They're the older, wiser people in our church. And so if you're trying to figure out how to be more at peace and how to be more free, celebrities can't tell you what you should do is find some of the, this church is blessed with a large demographic of ages, right? We have little kids to Gerald just celebrating 90, right? That's a big, that's a big age range. And this side over here, look at this side. These guys need you, right? Wave. And this middle group here, right? We're starting to fill in these rows, praise God. These, they need you. There is wisdom that comes from year after year of spending time with Jesus. Let me wrap up here. So Christian maturity is being content in Christ and Christ alone. And then lastly, uh, this is chapter 2. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Lacedonia. Uh, uh, I said that wrong. Oh, well. And for all who have not seen me face to face. And that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He ends again there on Christ, but there was a couple of words that I pulled from that. And he says, I want you to have full assurance. He says, I want you to have full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery. What did he say last week the mystery was? That Christ actually lives within you? He says, I want you to be fully confident that where you go as a believer, Christ is going with you. I want you to have full understanding, as much as your brain is capable of, of knowing the bigness and faithfulness and goodness of our God. Your level of contentment is equal to your level of trust. How content are you going to be in your relationship? He says, I want you to have full assurance. I want you to have full trust that Jesus Christ will do what he said he will do. And your trust is, it wavers from day to day, doesn't it? Some days you're really trusting, some days not so much. But your level of trust will equal your level of peace, right? And so what he wants you to do, he says, I want you to have as much confidence, full assurance as possible that your God has you. That God has you. Neither life nor death nor angels or demons or powers or principalities can separate you from the love of God. Because if Christ holds you in his hand, who's strong enough to pry his fingers open and take you away? Nobody. But we panic. We freak out. And that's okay. We have moments you're human. But I want you to begin to increase your level of trust and go, instead of going, I better figure this out. I better do this. God, trust me. Help me to trust in you. Right? Teach me to trust in you in these situations. What is your... Some of you are anxious and nervous and worried about whatever current life situation you have going on. And can I just recommend, it will go better if instead of grumbling, if you will learn to turn it over and trust. I'm going to pray. The altar is open this morning.
If there's something that you've been struggling to let go of because you love it, you have moments where you love it more than you love Christ and what he has done. I understand. It's not a, it's, this is not meant to shame you, but I just want to say we understand. We compete against other gods all the time. Thankfully, Christ has saved us. But these other things, these other idols, they pop up and they have to be destroyed. And we have to remind ourselves that the, sometimes the things we love are actually trying to destroy us. Christ, if we give him our love, is to heal us and make us more like him. If you need to spend time with Jesus and say, would you take this away from me? The altar's open. I'm going to have a prayer and then we'll have a time of response.